Hi, all, and welcome to the Inbold Company podcast. I'm your host, Christina Gonzalez Sander. If you're new here, welcome. If you're returning, welcome back. The Inbold Company podcast hosts weekly conversations that encourage women of color and non binary people of color to thrive in their personal and professional lives. We unpack how our cultural identities and upbringings impact our lives today because, yep, that matters. So if you know me, you know when I love anything that seems kismet, right? When I feel like the universe is conspiring for me, I feel like I get really giddy and it kind of makes my day. And today I'm having a really weird day. So I loved that I was able to realize this, but a couple of things. This specific episode, I feel like was super fitting to share because it's Mental Health Awareness Month. And this episode is with my friend, Isabella Toledo. So a little bit of background context. When we're talking about mental health, I think it's really important, especially right now, to talk about how you can be both sad and happy, how you can have these complex emotions because we are complex human beings. And Isabella and I talk a lot about this throughout the entire episode. But before you guys jump into the episode and listen, I would really love if you guys were able to read the Times article that I shared in the show notes. So Bella's dad is one of the Sitgo Six, which is a group of six Sitgo executives who have been in prison in Venezuela since 2017 without a trial. In this episode, we talk about how trauma really launched her journey of self-discovery from recognizing her privilege to going to therapy for the first time, which I feel like a lot of our audience has done that maybe recently or still has yet to go to therapy and what that was like for her and how we can continue to do the self-work on ourselves even after we start to go to therapy. So I feel like there's a lot of information in this episode that will resonate with a lot of you. And a little bit more about Isabella. She works as an account manager at Facebook, where she supports e-commerce advertisers to grow their businesses. She was born in Caracas, Venezuela, and came to Miami with her parents when she was one. But she's also a very proud Latina, passionate about empowering underrepresented communities through storytelling, activism, and community. If you have ever met Bella in real life or will meet her in real life in the future, you will know that she is super passionate about these things. And overall, I just want to say thank you, especially for this episode, since she's a friend of mine. It is really special, and I've been able to watch her on this self-discovery journey. And yeah, so I hope that you guys get a lot of information and resources from this conversation. Make sure that you subscribe, rate, and share with a friend who would love it too. As you know, we start off with an oracle card, and this one is trust. So think about that a little bit. Let it kind of simmer in your mind, and make sure you stick around until the end of the episode today, because we have a little preview for next week's episode, and right at the very end, Bella actually foreshadows what the topic's going to be unintentionally, which is amazing. So yeah. All right. I'll talk to you guys soon. So I have these Oracle cards. Okay. But I, I like to pull one 
with us. My guests beforehand. Okay. So we're going to do this virtually. I'm excited. All right. So what's going to happen is I'm just going to start shuffling. And then whenever you want me to stop, I'm going to pull the top card. Stop. Cool. So this says trust. Okay. These are my favorite things ever. Yeah, they're beautiful. Aren't they they so nice? Are they from a local artist? No, I bought them from a girl that she was vending at. I still cannot remember the name of this place, but so many people ask me and I'm like, it just escapes me. They have multiple locations. I have one on the east side that just opened by Infinite Monkey Theorem. And it's very big off Springdale or something like that. I just Uh, Central Machine Works. No, oh my <laughs> it's right by there too. I know. I can't remember. I'll, you know what? I need to just look it up honestly at this point. Cause it's, it's just getting ridiculous <laughs> that I literally can't remember. I didn't think I would be asking you such a hard hitting question. <laughs> so early Honestly, on. it is the hardest hitting question right. people have asked me. I'm always like, Ugh. <laughs> but I bought it from her okay. and the cards are actually from a woman in Portugal Okay. And it was her last deck and I'm obsessed with the aesthetic. So yeah, it's beautiful. My mom was visiting and I originally wanted her to buy me jeans for my birthday. And then I decided that she needed to buy me this instead. Absolutely. You know, and look, aren't you glad now? Cause like, I know, (laughs) look at this. Exactly. I'm definitely not wearing jeans, but I'm definitely using this deck. So it says the ultimate surrender trusting that you are exactly where you are meant to be. Measure your growth by reflecting on how far you've come, those divine situations that carried you to your next level of evolution. Have patience and trust the divine timing. No one can take or steal anything away from you, and you can't miss what is rightfully yours. Yeah. Dude, I pull tarot cards every week. Yes, me too. Literally the one that's on my window, like kind of altar thing that I have is literally just that it's like really trusting yeah like trusting that more so from the standpoint of like reflect on everything that you've learned and acknowledged and Mm -hmm. give yourself the time to relish in this like moment that you've you know grown and succeeded to a certain place and then Mm -hmm. like before you move into your next adventure so I love that that's awesome. But every time I've done it, everyone's been like, that is so fitting. And I go, yes, oh, I'm so always. excited. Yeah. The cards, no. The cards don't lie. I'm a big fan. Well, how long have you been doing kind of like a mystical self-care type thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like internal reflection and like uncovering. Yes. Probably, right? Yeah. Yeah. So both my parents are from Venezuela. So I grew mm-hmm. up. So both of them grew up Catholic as like all Hispanics do. And then once eventually, you know, my dad started growing up and pretty much did the complete opposite of what like a traditional, like Hispanic man does. He like became Mm -hmm. a musician and my dad started really exploring all of the other religions and philosophies because he was like Catholicism doesn't really sit well with me. And so he eventually landed on Buddhism. So, oh, so interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah, tell me more. I'm excited. So, growing up, neither of them really went to church. My mom was not a practicing Catholic. Mm-hmm. She, I think, would 
identify as agnostic probably now. Like she knows there's something bigger than herself. She's Mm -hmm. not quite sure what it is. But neither of them really had the conversation about religion or spirituality with me because they were like, I'm not pushing anything on you. Mm -hmm. And so while I appreciated that, because truly, like, I've seen the detriment of parents pushing really anything on their children, but I think something as invaluable as, you know, religion and spirituality, but in the same token, like, I wasn't really living my life with that kind of lens, right? It was Mm -hmm. very much like, I have to do everything alone. I'm looking to the external world to really give me the answers I need and the guidance I need to live my life. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I started practicing yoga when I think like 2013, 2013, I started practicing yoga and like woven in yoga was like a lot of Buddhist principles, right? Of like mindfulness and connecting to the universe because you are part of the universe and we are all connected. And, you know, we have spirit and guides that like, we actually don't have to go through this life alone and we can ask for guidance. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of like the beginning of my journey. And then I think as I'm trying to spend more time reflecting and not searching for answers from the external world, Mm -hmm. like looking more within, like the tarot cards have been really helpful with that. That's awesome. Well, I feel like it is, I don't know, like as I've gotten older, I'm realizing though that for me, at least in my mind, I feel like people look toward religion or any sort of spiritual guidance as guidance, right? It feels better when you have kind of a framework to work within, when you feel like you can ask for guidance, whether that is from the universe or from God or whoever, And I think that is really the point of all of those different philosophies and ways to see things. I mean, I love that you talked about that and how you kind of came into it on your own, even though your dad was practicing. Was he practicing? Yeah, my dad like would chant every day, morning, at night, had his altar, like that was always there. But he never, he would like, read he would be like oh I got you this like Buddhism book for children mm. and then like that was it like <laughs> he cute. wouldn't follow up any questions he's <laughs> just like here just you like, go right it was like here are some resources like do your thing that's cool no I love that he was like you can kind of forge your own path to think about right. this however you want well you grew up in Houston area is that correct Kind of. So I was born in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both my parents were also born in Venezuela. And I was a year and a half when my dad got a work visa to come and work for Exxon Mobil. So we moved to Miami, which is like classic Hispanic move. Like if you don't go to Miami first, like, you know, it's (laughs) what are you really doing? Right. Like you're not actually Hispanic. So I spent nine years in Miami. So from baby, baby to third grade, I was in Miami. And then after that, Mm -hmm. moved to Houston, finished high school in Houston. Got it. Yep. And then moved to Austin for college. And here I am. And here you are. Okay, cool. I didn't know that you lived in Miami for the first beginning part of your life. Yeah. Do you go back a lot? Do you have family there or no? Yeah. So my grandparents on my mom's side are there. 
Mm-hmm. Aunts and uncles are there. But that's pretty much the concentration of my family that's in Miami. I go back a decent amount. Mm-hmm. I mean, not as much as I should, you know, like I, I think, especially during this time, we're kind of feeling this like, you should be checking in with your family more, you should be connecting, right. And mm-hmm. I think one of my life lessons is like, stop shooting yourself. Yeah. So yeah, I, I've gone back like a few times. But yeah. Okay, cool. I mean, it's hard though, right? Well, A, right now we can't really leave our houses, but I think generally throughout the whole year, it's really hard to be traveling to only see family like every time you want to leave where you live. And that's kind of the shitty part about living far away from your family or, you know, you're like, oh, I would really like to go to this place when I have off or I could visit my family. It's, you know, it's it's a balance between all of it. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, I got family everywhere. But what was your experience like growing up as a woman of color then in, I guess, maybe more so in Houston? Because I guess you went there from fourth grade until graduating from high school, which is that middle school, you know, those years where (laughs) things are all weird. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, um, yeah, the like most triggering years of probably everyone's life. Yeah, you're like, that's so weird and confused. Right. Well, and like quickly to touch on my time as a woman of color in Miami, everyone's a woman of color in Miami. You know, it's, it's a bunch of Hispanics. And so for me, like last time I went to Miami, I walked into a grocery store and nobody spoke to me in English. Everyone spoke to me in Spanish. So yeah, moving to Houston, you know, I grew up in Katy. So it's suburb of Houston, like upper middle class families, predominantly white the high school that I went to was known as like the nicer area. And then when I, in hindsight, look back, it's like, well, there wasn't very many people of color, Mm. you know, and it was all very affluent, very privileged individuals. And so, you know, looking back, it's like, I can tell all of the things that I did to try to assimilate into the white culture to really Mm -hmm. fit in, you know, And, and a lot of it was, you know, I didn't really think of myself as separate, you know, despite really being able to tell the difference, for example, in like girls that guys were interested in, you know, like things like that. Like it was all the like white blonde girls that were like the popular, pretty, you know, homecoming queens. And even still, you know, like I would make fun of people that went to schools that were lower income and had predominantly people of color. Like I took that stance and I was like, oh yeah, like that school's not very good. They're not very smart. And it's like, well, when you look at the level of resources that that school has versus Mm -hmm. my school, you can't really compare apples to apples. And also like, fuck you. Someone could be saying the exact same thing about me. Right. Because I'm a person of color. They could be assuming and maybe they did, you know, you know, maybe not. I never, I think, experienced directly and granted, like I'm a light skinned woman of color, too. So I think I didn't really experience that differentiation. But I think it was Mm -hmm. because, you know, I straightened my hair every day. I did. Yeah. Like I watched videos of me in high school and I could tell my intonation was just so different. Like it was just someone so desperately trying to fit in and be part of the majority because I saw the way that my white counterparts would talk about 
the people of color in my school. Yeah. It is funny is not the right term, but that's the word I'm going to go with right now because that has been a very specific thread in a lot of the conversations that I've had with people. Yeah. Especially, obviously, during middle school and high school when things are very triggering and you're trying to fit in and you want to be liked, you want to be part of the group. And if you grow up in an environment where you are really the only person of color, then it bleeds into how you view yourself, how you want to be seen by other people because you want to be liked by your peers. Of course. And especially in that term of like confidence and the way we look and the things that we were doing, a lot of people have talked about that is like, I knew that like the boys probably wanted to date the white blonde girl. Right. Because that's like also what you're getting from media. That's what you're seeing and what you believe to be true. And it's not until like way later that you were like, oh, okay, that doesn't have to be the case. Right. It's just so it's crazy. I mean, truly, we've I've had so many conversations with people about it, and it is a topic that we're going to talk about at some point, specifically that on the show, just because yeah. I think it is really important because you view yourself differently, and that in turn affects your self-confidence. Absolutely, yeah. Well, when do you feel like you kind of recognized the stuff that you've been telling me about, like wanting to fit in and the way that your voice sounded and like, when do you feel like it transitioned and you looked back and you were like, wait, what the fuck? Truthfully, like I think, and I'll kind of back up and say like, my dad worked in oil, my dad, you know, I was very, very privileged growing up, you know, and I still am in a lot of ways, you know, and so going to the school and having, you know, my parents be able to buy me these things that allowed me to kind of fit in this subset that still very much was true throughout college. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I lived in West Campus. I lived in one of the most expensive apartment complexes that I think pay charge more than I pay for my apartment now. And I'm a mile from downtown. Like, you know, yeah. the absurdity. And so I think it wasn't until I took a class in college called The History of the Black Power Movement by Dr. Leonard Moore. And it was funny because that was a class that people who weren't even enrolled in would come and sit in. And it was the first time that I really sat and had a conversation about race Mm. sophomore year in college. And he would probe questions across the theater room of people and, and questions like, you know, for the black women in the room, like, how do you feel seeing black men date white women? Wow. And then, you know, then he would give men a chance to respond. And the response was, well, you know, we don't want to date always angry women, you know, like we don't, you're right, right. Gasp. Yeah, dude, it was the craziest experience of my life. Like I will never forget that class. You know, I wish I could have taken this class. It sounds like I've never heard anything like that. Right. And in that moment, I heard the voice of black women really saying like, yeah, I am angry. And this is why it's because you say things like, oh, she's pretty for a black girl. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm angry. Wouldn't you be angry? You know, and, and that's yeah. not even touching on just like the history of the systemic oppression, especially that black women face in this country. So that I think was the first time where I was like, 
oh shit, like I have a lot to learn about this space. But I think because it truly didn't directly affect me, Mm -hmm. I had the privilege of not really diving into it, you know, much like I think a lot of people do. And, and it wasn't until I started working at Naturally Curly, which is a a website. Oh my it was God, the- I forgot you worked there. I know. Isn't that crazy? Honestly, like what? that was like three versions of myself ago, like just like complete different embodiments of a human being ago. Right. What? So, I totally so, forgot. Okay, keep going. Dude, Sorry. Dude, and so hearing the story of, you know, granted, Michelle is a white woman, the founder of the website, Mm -hmm. but her voice was just like, we created this space to give women resources to stop Mm -hmm. trying to assimilate to this idea that straight hair is prettier, straight hair is professional, you know, you should change your natural hair. And most of the employees at the company were women of color. And starting to be part of the conversations where it's like, hey, actually, like, we should be empowering ourselves to show up as our whole human ass self and not want to hide any of that. And the time that I worked there was Mm -hmm. around the time where police brutality started getting really bad. You know, it was the Trayvon Martin times. And we all got into a room and like our leadership was like, this is a space for you to share how you feel. And it was extremely emotional and really difficult. But I was so proud of that leadership to be like, yo, like we were 20 person company, like we cannot act business as usual right now, when Mm -hmm. we know that this directly affects so many of you. And those are the moments when I started picking up like, oh, my God, like, this is really just recognizing my privilege. I think that that was kind of the first step in kind of being able to start growing and like fitting into my identity as a woman of color and Mm -hmm. using those parts of my identity to inform how I show up in the world. So yeah. Wow. I love that. Well, I think it's, it's all a journey though, right? It's, I said it to somebody else. I'm like, nobody, at least that I know of wakes up woke where they like know right. what's going on. I'm like, I'm like, I spend a lot of time Googling stuff because I don't know things right. and I wouldn't have known them because I grew up in an environment where no one really talked about it. And especially back when we were all in high school, depending on how old you are. Oh my God. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, then. people were definitely, no one had the language. No one knew right. what the words for everything was. Like it's just, right. it's a different time. And now I think it's really cool that we can all kind of dive into our cultural identity Start understanding ourselves more, start showing up differently in the world, supporting other people. I mean, that's the point of the podcast, but yeah. Well, thank you for creating it. Thank you. I was like, thanks for being on the show. I'm so excited. I really am so happy to have you on. Big thank you to Boss Babes ATX for sponsoring season one of the In Bold Company podcast. So you guys, I love this nonprofit so much because they have been so supportive of Inbold Company since the very, very beginning, and especially with producing this podcast. So not only have they supported me, but each year they educate and connect 1,500 plus emerging women and non-binary creatives, entrepreneurs, and leaders 
through their different programs with 20,000 plus community members per year attending their programs. I mean, honestly, that's like a mouthful for me to say, but they do such a great job. And we all know that being an entrepreneur, creative human trying to do things is super hard without access to resources and community. In May 2020, Boss Babes ATX will be introducing their first ever membership. So this is for women and non-binary leaders seeking personal and professional development. The membership tiers will be anywhere from $5 to $50 a month, and it will include access to Boss Babes ATX personal resource guides to intimate networking and trainings with other thought leaders and mentors in the community. So to learn more about Boss Babes ATX programs and their memberships, head to bossbabes.org and you can use the code imbold 2020 for 10% off anything in their shop, their membership when it launches and all ticketed Boss Babes ATX events for 2020. You can support them while supporting us. Thank you so much, Boss Babes ATX. So kind of circling back into family, and I know that this is a sensitive topic. And since I've known you, I think what's been happening in your family has been going on, right? I think we met back in 2017. Yeah. We've known each other for three or so years. Yeah. Boss Babes. Yeah. And... I just kind of want to talk about what that has been like for you in terms of your self-discovery process, because I feel like you're dealing with a lot of trauma and stress, but every time I see you, you always have such a big smile on your face and it is seriously so so amazing. Yeah. So kind of to make a, a very, 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 very long story, kind of long. (laughs) So Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, my dad's been working in the oil business since I came out of the womb. So I'm 24 years old. And when, you know, I graduated college and I'll kind of take a step back. My dad was constantly working, you know, he Mm -hmm. was climbing up the corporate ladder. He worked at Sitco, a a very, very like intense oil company. Right. So my dad would come home very, very late like I could tell that my dad's priority was always work. Right. And again, I think that's just a lot in like this immigrant experience that like you want to give your children the life that maybe you didn't necessarily have. Yeah. And so my dad, as he continued to work harder and harder and he kept getting higher positions, he was around less. My dad missed my college graduation because he was working. Was he working? Yeah. My college graduation. I graduated from the University of Texas. Like my dad, every, like our relationship growing up was like, your grades better be good. You need to get Mm -hmm. into a good school. You need to get a degree that's going to make you a lot of money. Mm. So I was like, dude, I did this. And you're not like, where are you? Right. Yeah. Was that a big fight between the two of you when he said he wasn't going to come? You guys just never talked about it. Me and him are both very avoidant. Mm. I get that from him. Yeah, very much avoidant. But I'm avoidant too, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I, like I mean, I think, I think all like very like high performance, high functioning anxiety people are. Like it's like, I'm just going <laughs> to do, 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 do. Yeah, you're like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm fine. Right. I'm right. busy exactly. right now, so I can't even think about that. Exactly. And so November 2017, at that point, my dad... 
a couple months earlier had just gotten promoted to a VP position. Like the fucking American dream of coming to this country and working your ass off and then get making half a million dollars as your salary and getting a company car, a fucking nice ass Mercedes, like Mm -hmm. having the money to do whatever you want to give your children, your spouse, the life that you really want. Right. And so in that moment, so it was a couple days before Thanksgiving in 2017 and they sent my dad to Venezuela to work for a meeting. It was like a no agenda on this meeting. There was really mm-hmm. it was very vague. They were just like, hey, like we business as time. usual. Like correct. And they traveled to Venezuela a lot for work. So when they were requested, when all the VPs that had recently been promoted in the last three months were asked to go to Venezuela, they didn't really think anything of it. Mm-hmm. And I'll kind of take a step back. My dad works on the marketing side. So that's kind of his area of this department. Okay. I remember being in Target and getting a phone call from my brother saying, dad's been arrested. And I was like, what? And he was like, we just saw on the news that in the middle of a business meeting, there were masked military guards that came in and took all of them. You saw it on the news or your brother saw it on the news. Correct. So our Sitgo never told us like the company that my dad has worked 20 years at didn't have the decency to tell our family that this had happened. What was your feeling in that moment when your brother told you? Shock, like complete shock. Like, I don't think I fully understood what was going on in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I didn't understand. And I was like, why would my dad have gotten arrested? Like my dad, my dad. in marketing. Right. Like who the fuck can you piss off when you work in marketing, you know? And also too, like my dad is like a straight edge dude. Like you should see how he drives. Like he doesn't break (laughs) any laws, you know? And so it was all just very, very confusing. And, and since that day, we went 45 days where they were isolated, where we had no information about anything. We had no idea where they were, the conditions of their health, all they said was, here's a list of things you need to buy for them. Right. So that included Who contacted you? Essentially the prison that they were being held at. They just somehow got your phone number, called your mom, I'm assuming, and were like, hey, your husband's here. Yeah. So we got a lawyer in Venezuela. We called a lawyer in Venezuela. The lawyer went to the prison and they were like, you can't see them. So mind you, all of these human rights that are being violated, like, They didn't let them have access to a lawyer to representation. And they were just like, all you need to know is that you need to buy them a mattress to sleep on. You need to buy them food to eat. Uh, You need to buy them toothpaste. You need to buy them everything because we're not doing anything for these people. So as time goes on, we still don't have any context. Has Sitgo said nothing to you at this point? Even after you guys found out on the news, you're just kind of like sitting ducks, like confused. Well, they cut our salaries. So they stopped paying, you know, right? My mom was a speech pathologist in Venezuela, but hasn't worked in the US. So, you know, it was a single family income. And so, yeah, so they cut their salary and they were basically like, sorry, like, we can't really do anything about this. What? Wait, how soon after November of 2017 did they cut your dad's salary? March of 2018. Is when they were like, hey, sorry. We cannot 
pay you because they are not employed. Yeah. And they didn't give you guys any financial assistance. They let my mom and my grandma stay on uh, health insurance. Well, my grandma's on Medicare. So they kept my mom on health insurance, which like, thank fucking God, right? Like that's yeah. the bare minimum that you can do. And so as time went on, you know, we just see Venezuelan news coverage of the government saying that there was an embezzlement sort of, that's what the charges are for embezzlement, for refinancing a deal that, you know, one, none of them were in their VP positions when this deal was allegedly signed. Two, there's no evidence of this deal being signed by them. None of their signatures are on it. So there is absolutely no evidence to support this charge, yet somehow, because there's no due process in Venezuela, right? there has never, every month where they had a hearing to essentially decide like guilty or not guilty, every month that the date was set, it was postponed. So they postponed the hearing 12 times before finally saying, we're going to take this to trial, which was ultimately the worst case scenario, right? It was like, we're taking this to trial, we're leaving you in this. So conditions wise, my dad is underground in a basement with 60 other people. Mm -hmm. They were being fed roughly 600 calories a day. Like I read an article and Mm -hmm. scrolled past a picture of my dad because he was so frail and thin that I didn't recognize him. Was that the first time you saw what your dad had looked like was in the news yeah. article? Yeah. When was the first time that you got to talk to him after he had been arrested and put in prison in Venezuela? So when they eventually started allowing phone calls, it has to be to a Venezuelan number. So we had to do the logistics of it was ridiculous. And these phone calls would last two minutes. I'm sure. But the logistics of it made it hard for it to be routed to any number other than my mom's. So I went probably nine months without hearing my dad's voice and like knowing he was okay. Wow. Yeah. Like by the time you talk to him, it's almost been a year. Right. And you have what, two minutes? Hmm? What did you guys talk about? I mean, my dad's always the kind of person that's like, everything is fine. I'm doing well. I don't want you to worry. Oh my gosh. And so, you know, he was like, I'm doing fine. Like, don't worry. Like my spirituality is as strong as, you know, it's ever been like, I'm doing fine. Like, you know, it's going to take some time. I'm confident that this will end. And yeah, he just, he asked me like, general things of like, what have you been doing? Like, yeah, you know, like, how are you? Like, what are you up to? Play? He's like, please, like, take care of yourself, you know, as much as you can get through in, in two minutes. So yeah, just kind of, I mean, I can't even really imagine. And then he has almost like an optimism still toward one talking to you being like, I'm okay, even though you already know, like, what is going on. Right. I mean, I know that since we've been friends, I've seen you post about the petition for the what they I guess they call the six people that were arrested and still in Venezuela, yeah. the Sicko Six. I've seen multiple articles that you've posted, your GoFundMe for your mom. And so what has it been like 
for you guys now trying to get through to the Trump administration? Because I saw that your brother had talked to him. I actually watched the national press conference earlier this year where they denounced Maduro. And mm-hmm. obviously, you know, I'm keeping up and I'm reading the articles. Well, but, I love you for that. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. I'm like, I want to support you guys as much as I can. And I think it is really important to tell the story so people know what's going on. Yeah. I mean, since the beginning, you know, basically the U.S. embassy in Venezuela was like, mm-hmm. we can't do anything about this. We have no jurisdiction here. And still to this day, right, you know, it's been 28 months since my dad has been there that we have literally no end in sight, honestly. So I guess to answer your original question that you asked me about how this has been, you know, a a path to self-discovery, I started going to therapy for the first time. And it's funny because speaking to being avoidant, like it took me a year to cry in therapy. Like I could not allow myself to feel the pain Mm -hmm, to like break down. Right. Because I was constantly pushing it down. I was constantly pushing it down. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep pushing. You know, I had just started working at Facebook Mm -hmm. in sales. So it's high performance. It's a busy job. And so I was like, all right, let's fucking go. Like, I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep pushing. And I kept pushing, you know, and, and I crushed my job and I was, you know, still kind of pretending in therapy, like, yeah, I'm doing my part in coming here and telling you how I'm feeling, but I'm not really opening up, you know? And so there is a certain level of like, this is my feeling. That's it. Like, what else do you want me to talk about? Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's, there's a barrier there. Yeah the stuff that you've already pushed all the way down in. I mean, was there something in particular that made you like reach that point where you were able to cry and finally feel your feelings? Yeah. 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 So my dad was able, there were times where he would like write letters on napkins and like hide them in his laundry so that his visitors. So like his brother that lives in Venezuela could give them, like could send them to my mom. And so I read one of the letters that he sent me to my therapist. And that was, I mean, we both cried. We both was like, yeah. And it really just, I was so afraid that if I allowed myself to feel the pain, it would never stop. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm never going to stop crying. I'm going to be broken and I'm not going to be able to put myself back together. Like I cannot allow myself to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think it really was just like reading a ton of books. Like I'm basically a walking self-help book now, honestly, but really trying to understand like what it is to have a human experience. Mm -hmm. And so much of that is rooted in like Buddhism, right. Is like being here in the now and like with meditation, really like connecting to what you're feeling and using that as a guide to like, what should I do? Like, why am I feeling anxiety? Why am I, you know, And, you know, throughout all this time, I'm working, I'm quote unquote, going to therapy, and like, it's kind of helping, but, you know, I'm still not really like cracked open. Yeah. And in November of last year, I think like every November, I'm just going to take like a month long vacation and like, not be around like November is not my time. (laughs) Um, Yeah, understandably. 
Right. So in November of this past year, I had someone very close to me attempt suicide. And that person I really thought was going to die. They were in the ICU for a month and I couldn't speak to them. The uncertainty just really like that cracked me open. It like kind of jarred you into being like, whoa, what is happening? I'm really sorry to hear that about your friend. Thank you. And she's doing well. And it's, you know, but the point is like, that was the moment where my body was like, you've been suppressing years. I can't handle it anymore. Like, uh uh-uh, girl, like you need to take a step back and you need to take care of yourself. And so I took two months of leave from work, which I mean, the immense gratitude that I have for the opportunity that, you know, and and it's funny because I start saying it in this way of like, I have this opportunity to work at a really incredible company. And my dad really helped pave the way for me to be in a position to to have gotten this job. But at the end of the day, like I fucking got that job for myself. So I'm just going to say that is like, yeah, um, while I'm very, of course, well, I'm very grateful, you know, I, I deserve to be there. Right. But I got paid my full salary and I didn't work for two months and I didn't have to worry about finances. All I had to do was sit and feel and go to therapy and just process and uncover and understand like, why are my thoughts the way they are? Why are my patterns and my behaviors and it was really like when I started having conversations around my childhood that I never had had before because so scary. I, was like, well, I was like, I had a normal childhood. Like I didn't see abuse in the home physically. You know, I didn't experience trauma growing up in my childhood. I was extremely blessed and privileged with so many opportunities. I didn't have to work through college. Like I was like, the fuck, what does my childhood have to do with anything, you know? Mm-hmm. And then what did you learn? Cause that inner child work is what's definitely going to get you. Oh, my <laughs> inner child, dude, my inner child just stays showing up. And like in ways where it's like my inner child, so woven with my ego and I never even understood, you know? And I realized like in going to a therapist that was specialized in trauma she was specialized in EMDR. She was starting to probe about my childhood. And she's like, why is it so hard for you to feel like sad? And like, why do you feel like it's so hard for you to ask for help? And I'm like, hmm, that's a great question, Janet. Let me think that about is- that for a second. <laughs> right. And, like, and uh. Yeah. And so it was like, having spiritual healing sessions and going to therapy twice a week and really just like learning how to give myself grace and be kind to myself. And it's like, now I have the awareness. Like now I feel like I'm in the stage of like, I'm aware of when my emotions come up and I'm Mm -hmm. aware of like, I'm aware of when I'm feeling anxiety and I can understand that it's like, I'm attaching to an outcome or I'm attaching to this emotion, you know, that I just need to let go. I need to be an observer of my thoughts, you know, things like that, that like, I never would have been able to access if I didn't have two months of not working. Yeah, it's exhausting, like doing the work and uncovering and learning about your past traumas and your conditioning and the inner child work. Fuck, dude, it's tiring. It's so hard. Well, you have to look inward and 
think and then feel a bunch of emotions, cry a little bit, most likely, and like reflect on all these things where you're like, I mean, honestly, if anyone's ever done any inner child work, which the first episode of the podcast is with Fernie Barcelo, who's actually my therapist, (laughs) who I've gone to therapy with before, and we do inner child work. That was like the first thing that we did. And I was like, oh boy, I'm getting fucked up right now. Yeah, it's so hard. It's scary and it's hard. And I'm definitely somebody that does not like to feel feelings. I'm a complete like avoider, shut down. I'm busy. I don't know what you're talking about. My only emotion is happiness. What are you talking about? I'm happy. I'm happy right now. Even when I'm like, you know, when you feel the crazy thing is I'm like you, right? If I'm super stressed, I can feel it actually in my body, but it does not reach my brain. There's a block here where I'm like, I'm moving. I'm good. We're fine. But then I feel like if I sat for a second and felt what was happening in my body, I'm like, oh shit, you're fucking stressed. Right. And it's so interesting because now in this time where we are forced to be at home alone Mm -hmm. and there's so many less distractions, I can see the people that are really struggling with this. And it's because they are avoiders. It's like, I can see who else is an avoider because you don't want to just sit still because you know that stillness, like there's a book, it's called When Things Fall Apart. Mm -hmm. I'll need to read it. Oh my God. Oh God. I have it on audiobook. Like I've listened to that shit twice. But the concept is basically just like, we have to find calm in the chaos and we have to allow us to have control over our own calmness. It cannot come from external circumstances. And it really talks about this like hot loneliness and being able to sit in your hot loneliness Mm. and really uncover and really understand like, and it really is like, for lack of better terms, like being woke, like you can live your life not being, and not, not in this sense of talking about woke from like, a racial or social economic standpoint from just like your own experiences and Mm -hmm. how to show up in the world. Like it's so much easier to avoid and that's why people do it. Yeah. I completely agree. I like the term hot loneliness. I really have to read the book because I feel like if you're not used to sitting in stillness, stillness is very scary because lots of things will come up and I think that's the point of meditation, right? And that's why right. people do it is because they want to tune in with what's actually going on. But most people don't really want to tune in. No. I can't well, say I always wanted to tune in. I definitely didn't want to tune in. I was like, I'm tuned out. <laughs> no. And I mean, even in the place where I'm at, where I recognize that that is where the work comes from, there's still days where I'm like, I'm not meditating. I can't, you know? And But it's funny because when people tell me, when I hear like, I can't meditate, when people tell me I can't do yoga, I hate doing yoga. Mm. (laughs) Unless it's from a physical standpoint, like the reason why you can't do yoga is because you physically cannot be still with yourself because there's something that you're running from. Mm -hmm. And like, that's not a life of fulfillment, you know? And, and I think even to your point, like your only emotion being happiness, like (laughs) That's the only emotion we want to have. Like we shame ourselves for whenever we're feeling sad and we're feeling lonely. And I think that's why it's also hard for people to slow down because 
as we grew up, right, our parents were like, don't cry, don't be sad. Like, you know, even working at a company that it's admired for people to be positive and happy all the time. Yeah, especially in sales, though. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You know, like, and that's what I'm currently trying to find the balance between is like the and both. Mm-hmm. Of like, I can be grateful that I have financial stability right now, but I can also be really scared that there's COVID in the prison that my dad is in right now. And yeah. it is an extreme possibility that my dad could get COVID. Mm-hmm. So it's like yeah. trying to have these and both of like some days, like I'm going to feel really good and mm-hmm. I'm going to have this mentality of like, I can create a life for myself and I can have new beginnings. And my dad's experience is my dad's experience. And it doesn't have to define the rest of my life and who I am and how I view myself. But then there are other days where I'm like, none of this shit matters because there is a lingering uncertainty, this like anticipatory grief of like, I'm mourning the loss of somebody that hasn't died. Mm-hmm. but very well yeah. could, you know? And so yeah. it's trying to allow myself to feel whatever comes up, let it exist and then be like, okay, I can detach from this because my emotions don't control me. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like society before used to see like there's only one category that you could be in, right? But in reality, you can be a multitude of things and humans are a multitude of things. We're all very complex. Mm-hmm. Everyone's experience is nuanced. There's so many different yeah. things at play. I mean, being a woman of color is going to be different across the board right? because there's just so many little things that could change the way your experience is. And I think it's important to talk about those things and to be able to say, I am this and this, like I can be this and this, because that is literally how humans are. There is no way to be one thing. Right. And even with happiness, right? Like this idea of happiness as the goal, right? Everyone's like, oh, I just want to be happy. That creates the shame for feeling other feelings that are not happiness because it's like, oh, if I'm not happy, like no one wants to hear about that. And you know how even when you see someone that looks really happy, you're like, hmm, why are they so happy? You know what I mean? There's like this weird push and pull at play with happiness as an emotion. I'll have to ask a therapist about that, but. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, and I think too, like, so one of my favorite authors, her name's Glennon Doyle. And as like a quick synopsis, since she was 10 years old, was bulimic. As she kind of started getting older, she was a drug addict. Eventually, she got pregnant and was like, okay, I need to become sober for my baby. And then she's like, okay, like this transformed my experience. And then like, she finds out that her husband has been cheating on her her whole marriage. And then it's like, how do I rediscover myself? And how do I like show up again? And in her most recent book, it's called Untamed, where she basically like came into her sexuality, divorced her husband and is now married to Abby Wambach. She talks about how there were moments where Abby would be sitting on the couch for like hours watching TV and she would get so annoyed and Abby would be like, what's wrong? And she's like, nothing. And then Mm. eventually she took inventory and was like, 
what is this anger saying about me? Like, why am I? And she was like, it's because I long for that. I followed this narrative of in order to be worthy, you have to be achieving, you have to be productive. And in this moment, that still rings true. It's like fucking push-up challenges, like get bikini body fit, um, Mm. (laughs) learn how to code. Like it's just, even in a moment of global crisis, we're somehow still being like, do you have to self-improve? Be doing everything. Right. And it's like, how do we transition from human doings to human beings? And I think- Mm, I like that. Yeah. We don't be enough, you know? I'm like, damn, where'd you get that? I was like, I like that a lot. I told you I'm a walking self-help book. (laughs) If you came up with that, you need to coin that because that's really good. I'm like, you need to write that down somewhere. (laughs) Yes. But I definitely agree. And look at the state of the world right now, right? It's I've said this before, but it's like, when are you ever going to see the entire world shut down? And obviously, I know that it's a privilege for us to be able to do nothing in a time period like this when other people are struggling and suffering. Right. But the world, if you can have the privilege to do that, the world is handing it to you on a platter to be still and reassess and reflect and think. And that in itself is self-development without doing extra projects. Right. It's like coming back home to yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. Instead of like redefining yourself and like writing your bestseller and like whatever, it's like, no, like, I mean, it's funny because we all, I think, are like, I want to transform my life. I want to be a better person. I want to have this like spiritual awakening, you know? And then it's like, did you think that that was going to be easy and not without (laughs) challenges? Because it's not, you know? And in hindsight, this experience with my dad and with my friend that attempted, that is what launched my spiritual awakening. And I know that while as painful and gruesome as it is, like, that's how you grow, you know, like, that's how you come back to the person that you are meant to be like your highest self that strips away all this conditioning and this bullshit that we tell ourselves of what we should be doing all the time. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know what to say to that because yes, I agree. And that was amazing. It's one of those things where it's like, it sucks that this stuff had to happen in order to get to that place. But those bad things that happened to us, the way that you can respond to that is very telling of how you can grow and transform into being that better person or like, You know what I mean? It's like our reaction to those things, I think, is very telling of, am I going to move forward as an individual and understanding myself? I don't know what it's like for most people, but that's at least how I feel when I think about my trauma. (laughs) Dude, yeah. You know, it's funny. It's like the whole, like, I guess, point of meditation, right, is so that you don't react, you respond. And there's, I, I don't know who said this, but there was a quote and it's like, there's a moment in between the stimulus and your reaction. And that's the moment where you decide how to respond, but you have to mm. allow for that space in between the stimulus and the reaction. And I think to this experience, like before, I think we can really start understanding like what kind of inner work 
we need to do, we need to take that pause after the stimulus and before the reaction and understand like, what is all of this anxiety that's coming up telling me? Like, wow, I really, really don't understand how to not be in control. How can I work through that? You know, things like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that's where this like idea of like, you have to be really productive and you have to do the work and you have to become better from this. And it's like, no, you should like sit and feel for a second and like understand what your body's telling you and what your heart is telling you and then start doing that. And work. then respond right after that. I like that there's a difference between react and respond because there is a big difference, right? I'm a, I can be a very reactive person. So I'm like, oh yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> I mean, same, you know, but it's like, I attribute that so much to my PTSD, you know, it's like I'm constantly on fight or flight mode. And so, so much of my work has really been understanding that like, I am safe and I'm not under threat. And when somebody says something to me that triggers me, I don't have to defend myself because I'm not actually under threat. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for whatever reasons those are like, why are we so reactive? And I think a lot of it is because we don't know how to slow down and really think about like, what is my true reaction to this circumstance and not just like, me protecting myself from something, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm laughing because I talked about the same thing in therapy also. <laughs> it was like the way Fernie describes it is like, think of a, like a turtle. And when the turtle sees something that they don't like, they like duck back into their shell. And, you know, we talked about if I'm feeling triggered or reactive to something that happens, I have to like talk to myself and just be like, it's okay. You're okay. Yeah. Now you can respond. And I was like, oh, okay. Because I acknowledge that I've always been quick to react mm-hmm. without thinking. And then later on, I'm like, oh, wait, I guess maybe I didn't have to do that. But in that moment, it's really hard to be like, don't react, respond. And right. without knowing and having that language. And that's why therapy is so important, right? Is to have somebody be able to explain things to you to point things out that you wouldn't otherwise know or understand or dive into. Right. And I wish that therapy was more accessible. Me too. Honestly, I couldn't agree more. It gets so important, especially for people that have gone through a lot of trauma, especially people of color. Yeah. It is so important. It's funny, like my mom and I talk about this in hindsight, like, and I don't even remember this, but apparently when I was in high school, I told my mom, like, I want to like see someone for my anger management. And my mom was like, what? Like, what? No, we're not. You're fine. You know? And then Mm -hmm. like, whenever my parents like caught me smoking pot in high school, they were like, my mom was like, should we take her to see a therapist? And my dad was like, no, we solved this in the family. And it's so interesting and that's so deeply embedded in the Hispanic culture and I think the black culture as well, you know? And and oh, I, Asian and culture anyone, too. In Asian culture too, right. You're fine. You keep it the fuck together, right? Like you have to make it seem like you have everything together to everybody else. You take your problems at home, we're probably maybe sweeping it under the rug and probably never talking about it again. Correct. 
And it's interesting because like the difficult part about, you know, and I think our society, one, I think we live in a bubble because I think mental health is so recognized here, like in Austin, in our communities, I think because it is so accessible. But I think at least in like, again, the areas that I exist in, I work at Fortune 500 tech company, you know, Yeah. but you know, to me, it's crazy that no one really knows how to quantify the impact of mental health until it gets a point where people attempt suicide. Mm-hmm. And it's like, by that point, it's too late. And so how can we not wait until that point to get people the help that they need? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, even if you do have access to therapy, it is still so hard to find a yeah. therapist that you are going oh to God, like yeah. and match with and use the healthcare system to research the information and find it. You're basically interviewing therapists that are provided under your insurance plan if you have insurance. Right. And then even then it's like multiple, multiple hoops. And if you're looking for help and you're searching for help and it's already difficult, it's like it's hard. You feel like giving up, right? You're like, oh my God, how am I supposed to find this person when I have to do all these different things? It's not easy and it should be easier and it should be accessible. It really should be. It's just so important. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Like who do we need to tell? Right. <laughs> Government. Girl. <laughs> Girl. <laughs> that's a whole nother hour. I know that's a whole nother story. But for me, a non-negotiable was like, my therapists are women of color. Yes. That's a non-negotiable because my trauma is so deeply embedded in my culture Mm -hmm. and all of these like nuances that come with, because even still, you know, within the communities of people of color, there's racism going on. Right. And so that in and of itself is like, it's just so complex. It's just so complex. But for me, that was like a non-negotiable in finding a therapist, it being a woman of color. Yeah. I think it almost has to be because they're just going to know so much more about what you're going through, even despite the complexities of your experience and the nuances. It's like they might understand immigration. They might understand the immigrant story, which is very, very important for a lot of us. But yeah, I agree with you 100%. What do you think that people can do to support you and your family? Yeah. So we just recently had an eight-page spread in Time Magazine, which is in fucking incredible. So just sharing the story, I think right now, you know, these kinds of stories are easily forgotten. Mm-hmm. Any sort of like pressure to the government to really take action. So I will send you the link so you can link it in the notes. Oh, I already have it. I read it. Yeah. I'm like, I I'm have sure it. I'm there. So much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I am so happy to share that and talk about yeah. this. And I was like, seriously, let me know and let us know how we can help support you. Because I think it is really important. I know that it is a humanitarian crisis right now because of yeah. COVID. Yeah. It is really important that they can figure something out. And I hope that they do. Have you guys gotten any word about anything that they're able to do or have they responded? <laughs> To your guys' requests? No, the government just kind of keeps telling us that they're working on it. And that's kind of that. So. Yeah. Well, I'm going to share it. We're going to share it. Thank you. I'm going to link it and make sure that people can do that. I think that's 
It's a very easy ask. Yeah. And obviously we would love to do more. So you brainstorm and we can talk about that on a different time. But kind of wrapping up, who are some like women of color that you really admire right now? So a lot of my conversations recently with my therapist have been around like so much of the work that I'm doing, I feel like is helping me cope with my depression and my anxiety, but I don't want to just be coping. I want to be thriving and I want to feel joy and I want to feel delight and pleasure. And she was like, especially during this time, like make that a priority, like be playful, like masturbate, like give yourself an (laughs) orgasm. Like, and so, you know, I was right. And so I was like, you know, like, you're right. Like lately for me, reading and listening to books has been how I'm really like internalizing this information. And she recommended a book to me called Pleasure Activism. Oh my gosh, that's on. Good. Yes, that's on my to read list. Yes. Someone okay, recommended so it to me. It. So the author, Adrienne Marie Brown, she is a queer Black woman who just is so dedicated to liberating women of color from the oppression that we faced and then kind of creating a new story of like what desire and our destiny looks like. And so I think the vulnerability and the openness that she provides, at least in the text that I've read from her, Mm -hmm. that's been huge for me. She's really somebody that I'm like trying to embody and connect with right now. Dang. I need to get a, I need to get a copy of that. I've heard it's really amazing. I'm also very excited. This is very random, but for some reason I thought about this, not today, but yesterday I was like, I'm wondering when someone's going to say masturbate on the show. I don't know why I thought that was important. I was like, I feel like people are the first. Yes. And you were the first. (laughs) I'm so honored. I'm so honored. I don't know why that came to mind, but it is important. Y'all are at home. You should be doing, I mean, honestly, later down the line, I feel like a podcast solely about like taking the shame away from us feeling pleasure. Cause we do. I mean, even like people talking about periods, Mm. women ourselves, like women are so uncomfortable talking about periods. I'm like, girl, what are you so uncomfortable about? We are all bleeding every month. Literally all bleeding every month. And it's like sometimes at the same time. (laughs) Right. Oftentimes all at the same time, probably right now we are all hella synced. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But yeah, I'm during this time trying to slow down and give myself grace and find, not find, create the space to do things that bring me delight and joy and make me feel playful. And that's kind of what I'm getting from this book. And I recommend to anyone listening to this podcast. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was so good. I'm so happy that you came on and that you were open and willing to talk to me about everything. I know it's probably not easy to talk about feelings. Like I said earlier, it's not my number one ML most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I just, I really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I mean, the way I feel right now after having this conversation is I just, I'm so energized and I feel so supported. And I think like, 
you're doing really incredible work by having a space for people to listen and connect and have these conversations. So thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. Well, that was my episode with Bella. Thank you so much for listening all the way until the end. And I want to thank her for her vulnerability to share this story about her, her family with all of us. I think it is incredibly hard to share something that is so personal and especially about your own journey. I think it's really hard to share that with other people and just, you know, make sure y'all send out some good energy and good vibes to her. Her father and the rest of the Sicko Six are still in Venezuela. And so I would love if you could share the Times article that is in the show notes. And I think Bella manifested next week's episode because we have Irma from Dirty South Sex Ed coming on to the podcast next week. She is a certified sex educator revolutionizing wellness by promoting pleasure for black indigenous people of color. You can check her out on Instagram and do some creeping before next week, but she's got a ton of stuff on her Instagram already. And I'm super excited to share that conversation with you guys. If you like the show, make sure you share it with a friend that you think would like it too. You can always find me on Instagram at Company, And you can also sign up for our newsletter, which I will also link in the show notes. And with our newsletter, we send weekly inspiration from women of color, non-binary people of color, whether they're from Austin or outside of Austin, Texas, We share a bunch of really awesome things. At least I like to think so. But if you guys have anything that you want me to feature, just feel free to send it my way. Or if you think it's something that might fit for the podcast, shoot me an email, message me on Instagram. And honestly, you guys, I'm having a real hard day. So if anyone wants to send me a happy meme that makes you laugh, I will gladly accept it. But yeah. I don't know. I'm just kind of feeling weird. Uh, Maybe it's the pandemic. Maybe it's just Monday recording this or who knows. But during this time, I've come to recognize that my emotions can flip between the hours. So maybe I'll be feeling better in a little bit. Anyway, I thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast. I hope that you'll be back next week to listen to our conversation with Irma. And yeah. All right. I'll talk to you soon. 